Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to Undercurrents, the first lockdown edition of Undercurrents. I'm joined <laughs> from a very long distance away, a safe long distance away, by Agnes Frimston. How are you doing, Agnes? Hello. Well, I'm in East London. You're in, you're far away, aren't you? You're outside of London. Yeah, Milton Keynes. Retreated to the home counties. So, yeah, so I apologise if you can hear some trains in the background with me, as you know, urban living. But how are you, Ben? I'm good, thank you, Agnes. It's it's yeah. amazing how much of my job I can do at home, and and now everyone knows where I am. There's no hiding. It's uh, it's quite. <laughs> in a it's way, true. I've become more reachable. <laughs> it's difficult, isn't it? Well, I think a lot of people are realizing how much of their job they can do from home, which is good, isn't it? I think. Hopefully, we are on scratchy lines, but hopefully, as of very soon, we will we will have slightly better technology. <laughs> technology in the post (laughs) i hope you can hear us okay ben who did you speak to this week well this week i spoke to pepine bergson who is a research fellow in the europe program at chatham house and he is an expert on the economic side of things so we had a conversation about obviously the ongoing coronavirus pandemic but particularly the european union's response Mm-hmm. And the debates that have been going on for weeks now about how to provide kind of economic relief to the countries in the European Union that are really suffering, particularly in Southern Europe, but all over the EU, suffering from the effects of lockdown, mass unemployment and, and rising inequality and people feeling that their sort of livelihoods are insecure. And um, we basically talked through how the EU has responded so far what the EU might do and actually I should say at the point that we were recording last week just before Easter there was an ongoing meeting of the of the euro group the the countries in the eurozone and they decided about two hours after we wrapped that they had agreed to a 500 billion euro relief package so if you don't hear a reference to that in the interview that is because it had not yet happened. Um, But actually all of the background and all of the analysis that Pepine offered to explain the thinking behind it, I think is super interesting and provide some good context for the decision that was made. Great. Okay. Brill. But yeah, so uh, who did you speak to, Agnes? Well, I was lucky enough to speak to Greg Jenner, who um, is a British public historian who some of you might recognise from the fact that he has been the historical consultant on all eight series of um, Horrible Histories. And he has a podcast on the BBC Sounds called You're Dead to Me, which is now in its second series. You might recognise him from that. But he was speaking to me about his new book, Dead Famous, An Unexpected History of Celebrity from Bronze Age to Silver Screen, which is out now. And yeah, we had a really interesting discussion about power and celebrity and celebrity and fame especially you know and whether our current glut of celebrity leaders you could say from Zelensky in Ukraine to obviously Trump in the US whether that's new or whether historically we've had some examples of that before. Awesome and that's kind of the structure that we're going to try and replicate over the next few weeks listeners because we know that obviously everyone everywhere is doing coronavirus content and there is so much to talk about with that but obviously we don't want to just be covering that issue alone we want to provide you with some different topics to take your mind off all of the stuff that's going on so we're going to be doing every episode a short segment on 
an angle on coronavirus and then we'll be diving into something a bit more different and a bit deeper and we are going to be weekly Ooh. very exciting it's I know. Official. we should have led so, with that shouldn't we <laughs> well you know coronavirus is well is the weirdest thing that's ever happened so far to our generation and most of us existing so i can understand why that potentially might have overridden the news that undercurrent was going weekly but you know well fine I think when the people come to write history of this period, the, uh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> the frequency of undercurrents may become more prominent. Definitely. Yeah. Well, on that note, should we have a listen? Let's have a listen. Hello, everybody. Today, I'm joined down the line via the ubiquitous Zoom by Pepine Bergson, who is a research fellow in the Europe programme at Chatham House. And we're here today to talk about the effects of the ongoing pandemic on the global economy, and particularly what the European Union has been doing to respond to the economic crisis that is ensuing, maybe about to ensue, We should say before we kick off the interview that we're recording this on the 9th of April, the Thursday before Easter, and we're aware that there are ongoing negotiations within the Eurogroup, which may date what we're saying, Uh, (laughs) but just bear with us. And we're going to be talking more broadly about the the longer term effects anyway. So hopefully what we're about to talk about won't won't be invalidated a week later. Pepine, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing? Thanks for having me, Ben. Uh, I'm doing very well under the circumstances. How are mm-hmm. you? Yeah, keeping busy. Yeah. <laughs> Zoom call 100 of the week. So I just thought maybe we could begin by talking about the mechanics of the economic impact of coronavirus. So people in the media are already talking about a depression, the likes of which we've not seen since the 1930s. There are many people who have either been furloughed or who have unfortunately lost their jobs due to the closures of businesses and particularly in the service industry, very tricky situations there. I just wondered whether you could tell us a bit more about the scale and the extent of the disruption and what the impact of that is going to be on the global economy. Yeah, of course. So I think the the comparison with the Great Depression is useful in some ways and less so in others. So if you look at so the kind of economic contraction that we're looking at at the moment that might be comparable to the Great Depression, except that at the time, it took quite a bit of time before um, we got to the same point, so to say. So before so the economy had contracted by the same amount. And now we're looking at maybe within one quarter, the economy contracting by something like 20%, which is absolutely unheard of. Um, in the modern period or probably any period. So it's quite unprecedented uh, economic uh, crisis that that we're in at the moment. Of course, part of that is people responding to uh, the virus and trying to keep themselves safe. But a lot of that is to do with the way that governments have have responded and the kind of measures that they've put in place. So particularly the the social distancing, telling people to stay at home. Uh, Some countries have said, well, only if you're an essential worker are you allowed to actually go go to work. Other countries are slightly more, or uh, sorry, slightly less strict with that. But that has just meant that whole parts of the economy, as you rightly said, uh, for instance, the services sector or uh, tourism, uh, basically come to a complete standstill. Um, and 
I'm in London, and if you would look up in London uh, on any normal day, you would almost always see at least one or two airplanes in the sky. Um, and there's just none at the moment. So that's another industry that's just completely come to a standstill. And the effect of that is, is that uh, you'll see a massive economic contraction and one that we, we just don't quite know how big that will be, at least sort of when looking at the numbers, because we've never seen it before. Sobering stuff. I just wondered then if you could focus in a bit more on the effects that we're going to potentially see in the uh, Eurozone or maybe Europe more broadly. How is that going to manifest itself? Is Europe particularly vulnerable to this or is it just um, similar to what we're going to see elsewhere? So the measures put in place by governments are very similar um, everywhere. As I said, there's small differences in how strict they are uh, in terms of social distancing and whether restaurants have been closed or not. But generally, people across the developed and the developing world at the moment are being told to stay at home um, unless they absolutely have to, to go to work. So in that way, the impact won't differ that much in Europe or the US or the UK, for instance. Um, in some ways, actually, some European countries might be slightly better set up uh, to deal with this, and then particularly in the way that they can mitigate the economic impact. So one of the things that we've seen happening basically everywhere is that governments have stepped in with massive economic rescue packages, throwing hundreds of billions of pounds or euros or dollars at the economy, uh, largely, largely through uh, supporting businesses with cheap loans, or maybe even more importantly, effectively paying people's wages in order for com- uh, so that companies don't have to uh, have to let them go so that's a lot of the furloughing that um, uh, that you mentioned and actually a lot of european economies have had similar systems like that in place already so that's one of the reasons why germany came out of the uh, 2008 crisis uh, better than some is that instead of companies firing a lot of their workers when they were faced with a massive drop in demand what they could do is put their workers on these schemes where the government would pay part of their wages. And once demand picked back up, they could just immediately put them back to work. And so in a lot of places, there's a really big risk that these kind of linkages between employees and firms might break over time as uh, companies are uh, laying off workers instead of furloughing them. So in the US, we've already seen 15 million people uh, claim jobless uh, benefits over the last three weeks, which is an absolutely unprecedented number. Just by comparison, to normal week, you're talking about 100 or 200,000. So there's a real risk there that once sort of the economy gets opened up a bit again, mm-hmm. that it will take a lot longer for those uh, economies to get back up and running, particularly because those linkages will have been broken. So that's the way that Europe might actually come out, at least in the short term, a bit better. On the other hand, what we're now seeing is an economic crisis morphing into something of a political crisis within particularly the Eurogroup, where there's a massive debate over how to uh, support the fiscally weaker countries in the South in actually paying for all of this, because these are, as I said, these are massive numbers. And uh, not only will the economic contraction that this causes be unprecedented, so will the kind of government budget deficits that will be necessary to keep economies in this sort of hibernation state. Absolutely. So before we move into 
the sort of the role of the European Union in this and and what the Eurogroup has been doing. I just wondered if you could answer it's maybe a basic question to you, but for the economically ignorant like myself, when we're talking about these massive stimulus packages that governments are providing, where is that money actually coming from? Is this money that the government of a given country could have been spending on other things or like where are they finding it from? And so largely what they'll do is uh, issue new debt to pay for this. So uh, effectively they run really large deficits and issue new bonds that investors then to finance all of this additional expenditure. So I think most governments will, because they're trying to keep that economy in sort of this state of hibernation, they'll try not to cut spending in other areas Mm. in order to pay for this because they want things to go back to normal once they're able to open up their economies a bit again. Who's buying those bonds? So first of all, those are uh, investors, but then very importantly, the central banks play a really big role in this. So uh, the Federal Reserve in the US, the Bank of England, and now also the European Central Bank have effectively said, well, we know that this could put a lot of pressure on those bond markets, and we are going to buy basically almost whatever is necessary of those bonds that uh, governments uh, put out in the market just to ensure that governments run no risk of running out of funds at any point. Of course, there is a, or there probably is a maximum to how much uh, they can buy before investors start to get worried in terms of uh, central banks effectively just directly financing government uh, expenditure. And so that's where some of the uh, discussion in Europe is now about. It is about, well, the ECB said it, it will buy almost a trillion worth of uh, government and corporate bonds, but will that be enough to not only finance the initial expenditure that's being done now by governments across Europe to pay wages for furloughed workers and all the other measures that they've announced, but also after that, there will need to be a lot of investment to ensure that the economic recovery after this crisis is strong enough to get everybody back to work and that it doesn't cause really large lasting damage. And that's where sort of the questions comes in. The question comes in: Is the central bank able to do enough, or do governments now need to basically pull their resources together and start building up a fund, for instance, to make these kind of investments after the crisis? Because if you look at countries like Spain or Italy, their debt levels are already so high mm. that they don't really have the space to do this by themselves in terms of raising their own debt levels to pay for these kind of investments after the initial phase of the crisis. What's stopping that happening then? It seems like, as you as you put it, it almost seems like the inevitable step that needs to be taken to sort of, as you say, pull these resources, use the structures that the European Union already provides to, to negotiate this and to come up with a way of, of uh, helping everyone. Why would that not take place? What's the downside? So it's basically the uh, the same debate that the Eurozone has been having for, well, definitely the last 10 years and really uh, since its inception. And that is that countries like Germany, the Netherlands and Austria don't want to be liable for the debts made by uh, Italy, Spain, Greece, Portugal, and maybe even France. So it's really about the way in which this kind of support is structured. And that makes a really big difference. So last week or the week before, nine Eurozone countries made a call to uh, issue something they call a corona bond. Uh, The idea would be that all the Eurozone countries issue a bond together. So basically, 
borrow money in the markets together, and then they would also jointly be liable for paying that money back at some point. And this would be only for this specific occasion, but a lot of the countries in the north are worried that this will morph into something where they become liable for the the debts made by Italy. And just to give you some idea, uh, Italy has a government debt ratio of about 135% of GDP, and the Netherlands has only 50% of GDP. So they're very hesitant about essentially having to pay the bill for Italy at some point. And as you say, this is a debate that's been going on for many years now. I mean, has it ever looked like being resolved? How, how have people moved on from this debate in the past? So this debate has never really been resolved because it just touches upon this really stark red line for a lot of these uh, a lot of these countries. Mm. And basically the way in which the euro was sold in the 90s, so to say, in a lot of these countries was to say, well, yes, we're going into a monetary union with, with Italy, but we promise you that we will never become liable for their debts. And then the solution was, effectively to say, well, we're going to just put in really strict budget rules to try to ensure that Italy or whoever really doesn't get into a position where that would be necessary, so where their debts would be would become unmanageable. The problem is Italy came in with a really high debt load. A country like Spain went through a massive financial and economic crisis a decade ago, and that's just sort of pushed up these debt ratios everywhere. So that's not really sustainable anymore. We can't really lower Italy or Spain's debt by any sort of realistic amount just by sort of cutting budgets. Also because while we've been trying to do that, and Italy, for instance, has run sort of headline budget deficits for a long time, but at the same time, that has largely been because of the high interest payments that they've had on their debt. So if you take those out and you look at what's called the primary budget balance, Italy's actually run... A surplus every single year. So if you look at just sort of ordinary spending, that has been below what they have taken in in tax every year. So that is just incredibly difficult to solve. And the obvious solution would be to come up with something like what they call debt mutualization, so that they all become liable for each other's new debt or for all of it. And that's also a thing that makes a really big difference is how do you structure something like that? But it's politically just an absolute non-starter, not just in the Netherlands, which has been the most difficult in the negotiations over the last two weeks and has Mm. really irked countries in the South, leading to rebukes from the Portuguese prime minister, the Italian prime minister, but also in Germany and in Finland and in Austria. It's it's just very difficult to to say to them, to electorates there, well, you are now going to be liable for the south of Europe, largely because of all sorts of stereotypes that they hold about the way in the, those countries are, are so easy to spend their money, even though, as I showed with Italy's primary budget surplus, that might not be, actually be true, but politically it's just incredibly difficult. So the meeting this week, then, we've kind of touched around it, but is, is this kind of the crunch time? Is this the point at which people are hoping to thrash out these differences and and come to some arrangement around some kind of euro bond or do you think that this is going to be something that drags drags on and on um as is traditional in europe um it's more likely to drag on for a while and be done uh, or if eventually get settled with some sort of compromise during a meeting of european leaders 
mm. late at night on a Sunday. Also because the the meetings that have gone on this week, um, so Tuesday the seventh, I think, and today on the ninth, are of the Eurogroup, so of the finance ministers of the Eurozone countries, and they had been asked by the European Council, so the um, heads of state and government of the EU, they had been uh, they had asked the Eurogroup to come up with proposals. Well, how do we find some way of collectively financing the required economic measures and investment after the crisis. And that has just run up into, into sort of the same kind of political uh, fights that we saw in 2012 or 2015 uh, around the Eurozone crisis, and particularly around the Greek crisis. And so that, that would just take time. And generally, that, those were resolved on the level of the uh, leaders in the European Council. They're also the only ones who can make such a big decision around, um, you know, even potential debt neutralization. That's a really big political decision that can't be made by finance ministers who are effectively sort of the technocrats here. And I wondered what, for you, this crisis has revealed about the the structures that the European Union and the Eurozone have to play with in this. I mean, it, from what you're saying, it sounds like maybe the processes aren't aren't ideal but what do yeah i mean what's your take on that and how could they be improved should they be improved well first of all there's sort of the obvious lack of a financial risk sharing mechanism so you know whether that be a euro bond in some sort of form or in some other way and that's always been there and that's why a lot of people will tell you that the euro can't work over the long term because sort of that is lacking Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think the crisis and the way that sort of the political debate around this has played out also really highlights a big difference in what uh, different member states perceive the EU to be and what they expect from the EU. So whereas in uh, Italy and Spain, which are also, of course, the countries that have been so far hardest hit by uh, the coronavirus, they were very quickly looking to the EU for uh, support in some way. And there's been a really big disappointment among sort of electorates in um, in Italy and Spain about the lack of support. And then on top of that, of course, came the whole discussion um, in the Eurogroup where the Dutch finance minister basically said, well, we should be looking into why you weren't fiscally prepared for this, um, which is, of course, a bit silly because nobody was prepared for a crisis of this kind of dimension. Right. Yeah, so they were looking at the EU for for help, um, maybe in a way that wasn't particularly realistic in that the EU just doesn't have any real competencies when it comes to public health. So there, there's just not much that the EU can do. At the end of the day, both sort of the way that the uh, social distancing measures are being implemented and the uh, extra capacity that needs to be created within healthcare systems, that's all still at the national level. There's just not much that the EU can do there. But yeah, so they looked at the EU. Um, well, on the, on the other hand, when you listen to leaders in the north of, uh, of Europe and in Germany, for instance, the EU just isn't really mentioned when they discuss uh, the crisis response. So they don't really expect anything of the EU there. And neither do their electorates. So, sort of, so they have a relative high amount of trust in their own national governments and their own state to deal with this and aren't looking for the use. So there's a really big sort of split within Europe in how they perceive the EU and what they expect of it. And that's also where then the demands and the sort of 
the red lines that are showing up in the debate around the corona bonds or the euro bonds, they sort of play into that as well. I think I'd just like to to draw this to a close then, just wondering, as you were saying, about the differing perceptions of the EU and the differing expectations that different countries have of the institutions that make up the European Union. We've already seen in, in recent weeks that there have been opinion polls conducted in, in countries like Italy, which have shown that trust or faith in the EU or attitudes towards how the EU has been handling the crisis have been really, really negatively affected by what's been going on. I wondered if you, without making the kind of grand predictions that gets think tankers in trouble, I wondered if you had any thoughts on what the impact of this crisis is going to be for the European Union from the point of view of the European public at large and how they see these institutions. Do you think it's going to have a big impact or do you think it's going to confirm attitudes that were already kind of in the political mix? So I think I'll start by making a not particularly big prediction, but a prediction nonetheless. Luckily, I used to work as a forecaster, so I'm used to doing uh, to putting out predictions that uh, turn out to be wrong. <laughs> um, and uh, <laughs> so, I think I'd say that one of the things that we're we're likely to see is eventually, after a lot of political wrangling and late night summits and all the sort of usual Eurogroup shenanigans, is some sort of uh, rescue package or investment fund including sort of the European Investment Bank uh, getting more funds. And there's talk of a, a fund to support countries uh, with paying furloughed workers, all those kind of things. So we'll see something uh, coming out of this that might look quite big, but it's unlikely to be a full-on euro bond or corona bond just because of the political hurdles to that. So that will do something. That will definitely be be helpful when it comes to both financing the initial uh, response and then the sort of investment and other uh, fiscal response that's needed sort of immediately post-crisis. But I think you're right to, to point to the real risk that this feeds into probably largely already existing attitudes toward, towards the EU. Um, so Italy had long been very pro-EU, but really sort of over recent years, you see sort of the way that the, the euro crisis and um, the constant pressure on the Italian budget and the way that the government has dealt with that has uh, led to a worsening of euroscepticism within Italy. Um, and I think sort of you'll also see some significant disappointment with the EU in Spain. And I think over the long run, that will just uh, sort of feed into existing divisions within the EU and that there's definitely a risk that at some point the EU probably won't collapse because of this. Well, it will. I think that's another prediction that I can safely make. It won't collapse because of this, but it will feed into sort of the kind of difficult difficulty that was already there. And I think one thing that I would always add there is that going for a euro bond or a corona bond, if they would eventually do that, that actually runs the risk of fueling euroscepticism in other parts of Europe, so particularly in the North. Um, so it's, it's a very difficult position that the EU finds itself in. But as ever, it's always really important to remember that for all these countries, there's a lot of political capital invested in EU membership. So they won't just let it fall apart uh, easily. But I think it will be a painful episode for the EU, even though, as I said earlier, 
from an economic perspective, a lot of Europe might find itself actually coming out of a crisis better than, for instance, the US and maybe even the UK, which is uh, going to be a very new kind of experience because that's usually not the case. Yeah, so it's it's a very mixed picture. So looking at changeable weather, excellent forecasting. Yes. Yeah, things might happen and we'll be here to talk about them, we hope. That definitely. So, Papine, thank you so much. Until next time on the pod. Thank you very much for having me. Right, so I'm here over the wonder that is Zoom, to talk to Greg Jenner, who is a British public historian. Many of you will know him from lots of different things. Uh, He is the historical consultant to all eight series of the Emmy and multiple BAFTA award-winning Horrible Histories, but he is also responsible for You're Dead to Me, which is a fairly, now in its second series, is that right, Greg? That's right, yeah. Um, of BBC podcast series and uh, also author of a new book which is what we're here to discuss which is called Dead Famous an unexpected history of celebrity from bronze age to silver screen which was published in March 2020. Greg thank you so much for joining us. Hello how are you? Well how are we all we're all here (laughs) Um, but we're going to talk about something that isn't that isn't the pandemic. Tell me about your book Give us a brief introduction. It is a relatively jolly and cheerful history of the concept of celebrity. What is it? When did it start? Why did it start then? How did it evolve? Uh, It starts, essentially, the argument is that celebrity was invented in about 1700, give or take. And I go up to about 1950 uh, because thereafter we know that story. We know Elvis and Marilyn Monroe and the Beatles and all that. I don't have to tell you that bit. So... It is a, a kind of lively, relatively amusing book, but it's a very, I mean, it took me four years to research it. Uh, it's sort of cutting edge in terms of its academic sort of uh, qualifications. All the stuff that I've read is the latest uh, research, but it is quite jolly. So you can read it even if you're not really into your history books. But if you're a professor of history, you might also enjoy it. It's that kind of book, hopefully, that catches both ends of the market. So why did you decide to start in 1700? Well, that's when celebrity is born. That's, that's, you know, my argument is that celebrity culture, which we often assume to be 20th century, you know, often sociologists have, have said that celebrity culture was born in the era of Hollywood. You know, that's you get your Charlie Chaplin's and, and Florence Lawrence's and the early movie stars. And that that was the kind of decisive thing that transformed what would previously be known as fame or renown into this new slightly tawdry thing called celebrity and as a historian I looked at that window that's not right I can't that's much too recent and historians have been working on this for about a decade it's a relatively recent type of sort of uh, scholarship I guess there's as a field it's relatively new for about 10 years historians have been going hang on a minute celebrity's got to be older than that and they've been gradually pushing it back and I having read all the scholarship and so forth sort of relatively confidently said that it's definitely older than 19th century and in doing all the research was very confident actually in the end actually saying no it's definitely up and running by 1709 is my first celebrity in the book now some would say it's even older than that I don't think they're right but it's a fun discussion so before I ask you who your first celebrity is yeah how did you define celebrity academic question potentially but you know how does it 
differ from just sort of general notoriety, say, or, or fame? It's an incredibly difficult question. It took me about eight months to come up with a working definition that I was happy with because turns out we we all know what a celebrity is when we talk about it in, in the pub and we all watch MasterChef and they've got celebrity MasterChef and celebrity come dancing or whatever and we kind of go, yeah, yeah, celebrity. But as soon as you try and say, yeah, but what is a celebrity? It's really elusive and slippery. Yeah. So I had to come up with my own definition and I had to do that so I could then go and look for it in the past. You can't, you can't go looking for something unless you know what you're looking for. So I had to be able to say, what is a celebrity now? And then retrofit it. So my working definition has five points. You have to be, if you're going to be a, if you're going to be a celebrity, you have to do these five things. You have to be unique. There's going to be something about you that's distinctively you. You have to be famous to strangers. So that's the people who don't know who you are, but do know who you are. You know, you've never met them, but they can come up to you and go, ah, you are so-and-so. Do you mean um, like by recognizable in the street or, or or known by name known by name probably recognizable in the street certainly would be happening in the 19th century but yeah. in the 18th century we have slightly more of a kind of known by essentially your identity is familiar to people who haven't met you so getting your name out there and people kind of go yeah i know who that is but they've never actually encountered you you need to have the interest of the mass media. So the mass media is disseminating your brand, which means that you have to have newspapers and blogs and, and written kind of print culture in the 18th century. And later on, obviously, we then get radio and television and Instagram, TikTok, whatever you want to use now. The last two points are the crucial ones, actually. Uh, point four would be that there's got to be a fascination with the private life. So you're, it's not enough to be renowned, which is a separate category. Renowned is when you're known for what you do, but not who you are. So I would argue that David Attenborough, Sir David Attenborough, not a celebrity. I would say he's renowned, hugely renowned, enormously renowned, beloved by millions. But we don't know anything about his private life. And nor do we see him in Heat magazine. And we don't want to know what he looks like in a bikini. So he's renowned. He's not a celebrity. So people need to care about the private life. And the final point is that there needs to be a commercial economy attached to the celebrity brand. And that commercial economy is more than just the celebrity being able to make money for themselves. It means that other people can make money from them. Celebrity is an industry. It's an attention economy. It's essentially voyeurism plus capitalism. And what happens is that fame generates money for those who can make money off of that famous person. So whether that's newspapers or journalists or photographers, paparazzi, T-shirt designers, whoever you want to say, if you can make money from someone else's fame, that's celebrity. So those five points all have to be ticked for me. And if they're not, I don't think that's true celebrity. And using that, I was then able to go back and chart when does this start? Which of those points then meant that, in your eyes, it really couldn't have started before the sort of 1700s? Because I can imagine the interest of the mass media, mm. that, I mean, did that really exist before that? Or you yeah. know, the conglomeration of all of these different points that hit at that, at that exact point in history? Yeah, that's absolutely spot on, is what doesn't precede 1700 really is we don't see... We don't see much of a commercial economy attached to the celebrity brand. So there isn't necessarily that um, marketplace of souvenirs and, and bits and bobs with celebrity faces on them or whatever. Now, there is one exception, perhaps, which would be medieval saints. Uh, there has been a fascinating uh, argument made 
um, that perhaps medieval saints had a form of celebrity because actually they did have a commercial brand. People paid money to travel to their tombs to touch their bodies and then bought little badges. And you know, it's where we get the word tawdry from, from comes from the, the shrine of St. Audrey. So there is possibly an argument there, but I don't think there's mass media in the Middle Ages. Uh, and I was a medievalist before I ended up doing this job. So I'm relatively confident that we can't quite say that. But yeah, prior to 1700s, you have print culture, you've got pamphlets, you do have newspapers. But in 1700 and 1702, in fact, you get daily newspapers. You also get the lapsing of the Licensing Act. And you get also what Jürgen Habermas called the public sphere, which is this idea of the public becoming aware of itself as a public and wanting to consume things and enjoy them, pay for them. And they wanted to have access to news and information, but also gossip and scandal and rumour and who's sleeping with who, who's wearing the best clothes, which plays are getting rave reviews and which ones are bombing. You see this sort of interesting transition also away from the royal courts, which had previously been where artists and poets and actors and so forth had, had tried to sort of make their careers. You'd often, you know, previously royalty had been the patrons of creativity. And in the 1700s, it's starting to shift towards the urban cities. People are starting to fund artists and writers and actors and so the bills are being paid by the general public rather than the king and the prince and the dukes and duchesses so the 1700s sees the confluence of several really important factors all at once really coming into fruition and so suddenly celebrity emerges quite rapidly and almost fully formed actually but you wouldn't have counted say for example a king or a queen as a celebrity so this is where it gets really interesting, because this is a question that people always ask me, and it's one that I have to address in the book, and I do address in the book. But the truth is, is that, you know, if you're going to read your, uh, I mean, your Max Weber, maybe, or your, you know, if you want to read your proper philosophy and so forth, you've got to start saying, okay, what is, what is power? What is leadership? What is charisma? How does politics work? Does a king have charisma? Yes, perhaps. Does a king have celebrity not really but maybe if they play up that game and so there are some examples of monarchs who did actually sort of shift their weight in towards the celebrity sphere the most obvious one in the book would be Marie Antoinette who in several ways comes a cropper really because of the fact that she had started to dress very informally she'd started to use uh, a fashion designer who had a shop in Paris that people could go and buy at so you could go and buy the clothes that the Queen was wearing and Marie Antoinette kind of demystified the power of monarchy and performed it almost like an actress and people started to think of her like an actress and they end up really talking about her in the same way they would talk about a courtesan or an actress or someone provocative perhaps and they started to write quite you know filthy aggressive horrible gossipy blogs about her and her sex life and accused her of all sorts of lurid things because she had played this game a little bit and she'd gone you know she'd sailed too close to the wind she'd got essentially she'd moved too far over from where the dignity of monarchy was meant to be and it meant that when things started to go wrong in the economy and obviously that's the primary cause of the french revolution is economic and political factors but when it came to the conversations about, you know, are we deposing the king? Are we executing the king? One of the things that starts to play into this is that she has lost her gravitas. And she'd done so because she'd, po you know, she'd posed in paintings wearing very 
sort of um, not particularly formal dresses, you know, almost underwear. She'd been seen out and about at the opera. She'd pretended to not be the queen. She'd tried to go un- undercover incognito, you know, in the same way that celebrities put a baseball cap on to try and hide who they are. She'd done this and it, it just drew more attention to her. So she accidentally sort of ended up in the, the full glare. Uh, and you can see it now, I suppose, with, well, Harry and Meghan is the obvious case study where, to a certain extent, the, you know, the, the princes growing up, both Will and Harry, have sort of benefited from a kind of celebrity culture, but they've always been able to lift themselves out of it a little bit when they wanted to, because they could claim royal privilege and they could shut down the media and they could be quite cautious and careful if they wanted to. But they then married uh, beautiful commoners who were elevated to sort of princess status, you know, which of course is classic Hollywood fairy tale stuff and sells this idea of celebrity and royalty meshing. And Meghan is particularly has been treated as a kind of tabloid punch bag because she is an actress, she is a person of colour, she's American, she's a divorcee. These are all scandalous things in certain people's eyes. And so she has been treated very poorly as a celebrity would rather than as a minor royal would be. So we do see it a little bit, but the truth is, is that monarchy is not the same as celebrity. Okay, but I'm going to ask you now, who is the first celebrity, Greg? Who is the first celebrity? <laughs> well, he's a really fascinating one because he's pretty unexpected. Because, you know, when you think about what is a celebrity, if I if I was to jump out of you in the street and say, name a celebrity right now, I don't know who you're going to go for, but you're probably going to go with someone beautiful, attractive, glamorous. You know, they, they may be young in their 20s, 30s. They probably look great. They've probably got fantastic clothes. They're probably maybe a singer or a performer. The first celebrity that I think, in, certainly in my book, is Dr. Henry Sacheverell, who was a conservative theologian. <laughs> he was not, you know, not your classic. Not what you know, I thought you were going to say. <laughs> he was, you know, he's a sort of Anglican vicar who who gave a speech in 1709 attacking the sort of soft, woolly Church of England values. He thought they weren't quite serious enough, and he also attacked the government at the time. Queen Anne was in was in power at the time, and her government was a Whig government, and he was a Tory. And he gave this very famous speech in St. Paul's Cathedral on the anniversary of Guy Fawkes Day and attacked this kind of soft, woolly Church of Englandy thing that he didn't think was was right. And it divided the nation down the middle. Can you imagine? <laughs> the nation divided by politics, as if. And he became a hero or a villain, depending on how you voted. He was paraded to the streets. He had um, bodyguards. He was turned into a celebrity. People could buy stuff with his face on it tat you know they could buy wax fans wax seals they could buy badges you could buy um, engravings of him he posed for 20 different images he had um his name put on the front of pubs people named their babies after him wow. uh, there were sacheverell riots uh, so there was all this paraphernalia and souvenir and, and marketing stuff merchandise stuff attached to his brand and you were either for him or against him and he helped the Tories win a huge landslide in 1710. He was one of the first ever celebrities to help decide an election. So we think nowadays about, you know, Hugh Grant telling people to vote Labour or whatever. Actually, funny enough, he was at the very beginning of celebrity culture in 1709, over 300 years ago, he was this political radical figure who, sort of a Nigel Farage type character who divided the nation 
and was a champion for conservative values and delivered a big win that you know hadn't been coming until he had electrified that particular cause so he's a really unexpected early celebrity because i i in my head had had sort of byron you know <laughs> yeah sure like i thought the first sort of celebrity would be you know a writer or a painter or you know the pre raft or god no, yeah however one feels about them but that's really interesting that it's actually he's actually in your mind a political figure yeah yeah and politics and celebrity have gone hand in hand for a long time and and we're seeing we're seeing it now of course but um it you know i think you're right byron was a huge celebrity and he's in the book plenty he's very interesting and funny and uh, there are actors and writers and painters and all sorts of people in the book there are 125 people in the book including clara the rhino who was a two-ton celebrity in the 1740s she was um she was a superstar um but politics and celebrity have often been intertwined and I guess we are living through an age now where it's it's coming more and more obvious perhaps but in the 18th century there were certainly political figures who had a kind of celebrity brand and who played a celebrity game they used the tactics and techniques of celebrity as part of their political um, machinations as part of their ideology as part of their promotional gimmick to get people to vote for them or believe in them or whatever so do you think that there is um somebody that you've researched who has done that in a really successful way that we potentially don't necessarily think of as celebrity or we haven't given enough credit to potentially in the modern world or in the past in the past we'll get into the modern world that's a really good question i think one of the things in the book i try to argue for is that celebrity is not vapid and superficial so it can be you can have superficial celebrities who aren't particularly interested in anything and they just you know they like posing in nice clothes and that's their gimmick but what's really crucial about celebrity is that it often has an enormous sociological power in shaping the ethical conversations of the day and there are also the need for a certain type of celebrity that is either transgressive or is um, emulative so you've got on the one hand heroes and on the other hand villains and so celebrity culture, as well as the kind of so-called famous for being famous type, you know, people who are just famous for being glamorous or beautiful or sexy or whatever. And there are plenty of those in the 18th century. Mm. We also have celebrity villains such as Jack Shepard in the 1720s, Cartouche in France around the same time, um, Dick Turpin around the same time. They were folk heroes. They were elevated to the status of being public role models, but they were criminals. And they were working class often and they were people who were Dick Turpin wasn't so much. He was he was kind of a villain at the time as well. But there was a certain glamour to him as a highwayman. But Jack Shepard was genuinely beloved by people. He was a working class burglar, not very good at it. But what his skill was, was escapology. He could, he could break out of prison and he did it four times and people loved him for it. And he ended up as this big star. And funnily enough, he really enjoyed being famous. He used to disguise himself and go undercover so he could gossip about himself in pubs and sort of go up to people and go, oh, that Jack Shepard's pretty good, isn't he? Um, which is amazing. You know, we these days we get that on um, TV talk shows where you get celebrities going undercover to, you know, to prank the public. But he was doing it in the 1720s. And he ended up going to the gallows. They did eventually managed to hang him. And a quarter of a million people turned up to watch him hang. You know, a city of a million people, a, a four, well, about 25%, probably 20 to 25% of people came to see one person go to the death. And he was 
glamorous. He was beloved. He was liked. And in France, they had Cartouche, who was the French Robin Hood. Uh, he was he stole from the rich to give to the poor. Same idea. And then in the 19th century, in the 1880s, you get Jack the Ripper, who also had a very sinister, dark celebrity brand. So on the one hand, these people, we never think of them as celebrities because we think of them as criminals. But they they did. They, they had commercial economies. People paid money to read about them. People wanted to know what they looked like. They wanted to visit the sites that they had visited. People went to Jack the Ripper's um, crime scenes to go and they paid money to go and look around and see where people had been murdered. You know, very strange that. You say past tense, but I mean. Still happens now, of course. And, yeah. you know, and if you go to London Dungeons, it's a it's an attraction designed for children, which is still built on this gothic idea of the macabre as something innately alluring to kids. But on the flip side of that, you also get the heroes as well. So in the book, I talk about Nelson and, and Washington as these two heroes who were flawed human beings, but they were turned into myths because their countries needed them to be heroic. So Nelson obviously was a Flanderer who, you know, cheated on his wife and George Washington, uh, you know, became this Republican superhero. He became the American Cincinnatus, who was this Roman general who had stood up in Roman times when there was a disaster, who'd, who'd led Rome and then who'd basically retired from power and said, I don't, you know, I've, my work here is done. I'm going back to my farm. And George Washington did the same. He voluntarily resigned the presidency. And so that turned him into this mythical great man who who could do no wrong, who refused, you know, he didn't even lie when he was a child, which of course is nonsense. It's not true at all. So there's a myth, a mythologization process going on with celebrities and with villains. And so I guess in answer to your question about people who are unexpected celebrities, I suppose those people are unexpected because we don't necessarily think of them as useful, but they are celebrity has a, a function in society and on the one hand we enjoy the kind of superficial glossy gossipy nature of it but on the other hand actually we do an awful lot of our ethical questions and conversations through the prism of famous people and we talk about right and wrong and is it okay to you know drink certain dr things to do certain drugs to behave in certain ways and we often have the conversations through major celebrities and their errors and their, their crimes, their misdemeanors. And we often also will move the boundaries of taste and decency if we like a celebrity enough. So if someone transgresses, you know, Lord Byron, for example, was a great provocateur, Mae West in the 1930s, David Bowie to a certain extent, you know, if these people step over the line of where normal society would draw the line. Mm. And if we like them enough, then society moves that line and we, progress as a society to a new level of of acceptability or of tolerance and if we don't like them enough then we punish them and we cancel them and we run them out of town and we exile them so Oscar Wilde was exiled and destroyed by his sexuality but Mae West was elevated despite the fact that she was sexually provocative that her comedy was all about sexuality people liked her she was funny she was witty so she was given a movie career so celebrity is really surprising in that way because it actually informs a huge amount about who we want to be as a society. It's also, do you not think sometimes about how long people hang around for? Because you mentioned Nelson, who is obviously a really interesting figure in that sense. Compare, compared, I think, to say Wellington, who, you know, was an absolute hero after Waterloo. And then you could argue bombed as prime minister, um, but used his celebrity, his military celebrity to become a leader who hasn't really been remembered that well by history, could you argue? I'm not sure. 
Well, I suppose Wellington's a fascinating figure because what he doesn't do is die on the battlefield. Yeah. And Nelson achieved his apotheosis into myth, you know, into myth because he was killed in his glorious moment. He won, you know, he wins the battle of Trafalgar and then is immediately shot. And so that is the perfect way to go out. You know, it's the equivalent of dying young as a rock star. You you go out in your glorious, perfect version of yourself, and then people can mythologize you. Whereas Wellington turns into a sort of old man with very conservative views who is still hanging around by the time you get to the 1850s and you know his great victory had been 1815 so part of the problem there is he just slightly outstayed his glorious moment and then you know society starts to change around you and then you start to get remembered in different ways but what's interesting i suppose is that some celebrities got very very famous very very young and some of them got famous really old and it's not always a question of people in their 20s. You know, in the book, I talk about Master William Betty, who was a child actor who became famous age 12 in 1803. Um, and he was, for about two years, just people were obsessed with him. They absolutely loved him. They were obsessed with him. They trashed the theatres trying to get in to see him. But by the age of 14, 15, he was over. That's it. He, he had had his short window. Um, and he was no longer cute and funny and whatever you want him to be anymore. He was, you know, he was a 15 year old and no one really liked that. And then on the other hand, you have Gertrude Stein, who became a, a superstar novelist aged 60. Um, or rather not a novelist, really, because her book was called The Autobiography of Alice B. Toklas, which obviously it's a joke because it's an autobiography of someone else, of her lover. She was a, an expat. She lived in Paris. She knew, you know, Picasso and Hemingway and all these great modernists and so she was basically giving people access to this glamorous life she'd been leading but she had been a laughingstock for 20 years people had read her poetry and found it incomprehensible they thought it was gibberish and nonsense really really you know people thought she was a hoax because her poetry was so difficult to read and so what's extraordinary about her is that she suddenly is taken seriously age 60 and becomes this literary star. And her name was in lights in Times Square. She was interviewed across America. She became beloved. And people were really startled by this because for 20 years, they'd been laughing at her. So it's it's a weird story there because on the one hand, people can be made famous quite late and sometimes they can be made famous very young. And then you know they have a Macaulay Culkin kind of scenario where you, you peak too soon and then it's all over before you've even hit 15. So the age of, of celebrity is also another weird conversation. We often assume celebs are young, glamorous, but they don't have to be. They can be a variety of things to us. Yeah. So this link between power and celebrity, because mm. people, I think, think that we're in a slightly extreme situation at the moment, potentially if you look at Zelensky in Ukraine mm -hmm. or obviously Trump in the US. Boris Johnson, there's an argument that Have I Got News For You is responsible for him being prime. Mm -hmm. But before that, we had Schwarzenegger, Reagan as well. Do you think that the current uh, setup is odd or ahistorical? Or do you think this link between power and leadership politically and celebrity in other realms is something that has happened actually, you know, when in your research has been going for a long time? We just think we're special right now. We are definitely living through a particularly strange moment. I mean, you know, the fact that Zelensky, Trump, Beppe Grillo in Italy, I mean, obviously he's not a leader, but he's he's had a real kind of two, three years of real um, progress there. Um, 
I guess, Bolsonaro in, in Brazil. We're seeing a very specific type of kind of populist leader that has a certain celebrity brand. Zelensky obviously is the most interesting one, probably, because he did the Beppe Grillo thing and actually achieved power. You know, he went from being a comedian who plays a president to then being the actual president, which is absurd on so many levels. And yet, on the other hand, sort of makes sense in the, the world that we now live in, I guess, because... And a huge share of the vote. You know, it wasn't, you know, he won by an enormous amount. Yeah. It, it's not just sort of 48, 52. It's an extreme vote of confidence in what he represented. But what does he represent except, you know, he? it's the equivalent of voting for Martin Sheen to be American president. It's like you, you watch the West Wing and you think, that's the man I want in office. But that man is scripted. He's not real. He's not, he's not a, you know someone else has created him and edited him and, and added sound effects and all sorts. And so what's so interesting, I suppose, is that there, I guess, we see a president who has come up because people have engaged with the idea of him on television, but also then they've connected with him as a comedian and also with his authenticity as a truth teller, because comedians are often truth tellers. That's what comedians try and do is they try to be the, the voice of the people, but also they try and be honest. But even that is constructed, of course. Comedy is often, you know, heavily edited and, and whatever. Beppe Grillo, the same. Now, Trump is the, I mean, he's similar, isn't he? But he's he's slightly different. Trump is the kind of, the idea of a businessman, the idea of a billionaire. And yet he's obviously a very unsuccessful businessman who's forever losing money, who's run all sorts of terrible scams and all sorts of businesses that have never really worked, uh, who's whose billions of dollars may not even have existed for some period of the 80s and 90s. You know, he was probably doing quite a lot of creative accounting. And so we know that here's someone who who constantly was telling people that he was a celebrity and living the life, then eventually just managed to make that a sort of self-perpetuating machine. And people started to think of him as a celebrity, even though he's not really got any talent. And he comes from a world that doesn't usually produce celebrities. And he ended up, of course, being the host of a TV show, or rather the judge on a TV show, The Apprentice, where he was firing people from a job they didn't have, uh, which is a very strange gig. And he then ran for office almost on a sort of whim, presumably not intending to win or not expecting to win, but in the hope of, again, perpetuating this kind of brand of him as just someone that you need to know about. But what's fascinating from my point of view, and I write about it in the book a bit, is that Donald Trump was covered like a celebrity. So the coverage given to him, he got $5 billion of free airtime in America when he ran in 2016 because he was considered to be a celebrity candidate. And all the other candidates were considered to be political candidates. So you've mentioned Reagan. Reagan was a politician. You know, he was a, he'd been an actor first. Sure, he'd been in Westerns, but he'd spent two decades or whatever in political office, climbing the ladder, doing all those obvious things. Arnie Schwarzenegger, yes, obviously, had gone from a movie star to being governor of California. But I think what's interesting about Arnie is that he then, even now, you see him engaging in policy discussions. He clearly was starting to take an interest in politics and he may not have been the most successful governor, but he clearly believed in in what it's what politics is for. Trump clearly has no interest at all in policy. I mean, he, you know, there's a sort of Warhol quote saying that, you know, don't don't read what they say about you. Just measure it in column inches. He just cares about his ratings. You know, last week on, you know, in a press conference, he just went on about the fact that he's number one on Facebook and people are dying in their thousands in America from coronavirus. And all he cares about is 
is ratings. And that is a celebrity mindset to the ultimate level. You know, he's not, it's not Zelensky level because Zelensky had emerged as a celebrity performer, but is now trying his best to be a president. Donald Trump is still trying his best to be a celebrity. He still cares about how people think about him and what his coverage is and what his ratings are. So he's not a good case study, I don't think, because he's, he's so just of that world. And yet somehow he's hijacked the political process. He hijacked the entertainment industry. He hijacked politics. And now America is stuck with this man who's deeply unqualified in the, the midst of a global pr- a crisis. It's a really strange moment. I've got two final questions for you. First one is, it's the Zelensky thing is really interesting because in many ways what people were voting for, they were being persuaded by an incredibly good marketing strategy. What, what does the entertainment industry do well? What does shows do well? Marketing, they're brilliant at it. And what's confusing is that that has hidden his integrity, his actual political integrity. Whereas what do you think is the link, maybe aside from Trump, between the idea of celebrity and integrity, especially when it comes to leadership? Um, because you had some sort of celebrity leaderships in the leaders in the past. I'm looking at you, Disraeli, and civil <laughs> nations, the worst book in the entire world. <laughs> you know, there was a huge amount of integrity linked, tied up with their fame and celebrity. Whereas do you think integrity and celebrity are at odds? Or do you think that's part of the political leadership at the moment? There's a fluidity to the idea of integrity, because at the moment, the key word that everyone's banging on about is authenticity. And authenticity is the thing that all politicians are desperately trying to generate. The irony, of course, is that as soon as you try to be authentic, you are faking it. You're, you're performing it, you know, in the same way that we know that you know, politicians remove books from behind their heads when they're doing photo shoots because they don't want people to see that they've read a certain embarrassing book. So there's a kind of double-edged sword to it because on the one hand, you want to be person of the people, man of the people, woman of the people, whatever, but you also want to be charismatic and, and charming and give pithy one-liners and convince people that you are a great leader in times of strife. And so integrity is a really difficult thing to pin down because on the one hand, celebrity is all about performance. Celebrity is a industry and it's a projection. It's where people create an artificial version of themselves and they play it like a role. They put a persona out there and they perform that role so that at home you might be just called Dave and then outside you are David Cameron. And David Cameron is, you know, he, he has two names. He's, he's not David and he's not Dave. He's David Cameron in the same way that Tony Blair is blair to many people in the same way madonna you know it probably isn't called madonna at home i don't know what she's called at home she's probably mum or uh, whatever but like there's a persona that is performed and in politics that can still happen as well so the idea of integrity is complicated and difficult to achieve because you have to perform as a celebrity and you have to perform as a politician you're always trying to convince people i mean they in a lot of ways they have a lot of similarities because they're always always thinking about how to make the maximum amount of splash how do you get people to cover you how do i get column inches how do i get the headlines but you don't want to attract scandal celebrities are quite happy to attract scandal sometimes because it's it can be quite a good thing for them politicians less so but of course trump has proved that scandal used to be damaging and now if you think you've got the polling numbers it doesn't matter what you say you know his his approval ratings have stayed relatively stable for four years despite 
an extraordinary litany of horrific, you know, terrible, terrible things that any other politician would be destroyed for. So integrity is obviously a lovely thing. But what what is it? What do we mean by it? And when you're looking at celebrity culture, I think you have to probably remember that artifice is often that's the thing that means you can do whatever you want to do as a celebrity. It's incredibly difficult to be an authentic person in the public eye because your natural reaction is probably just to say stupid stuff or gabble or freak out when the cameras come out. You have to perform in front of the cameras. And so politicians probably, it's very hard to have integrity, but they can certainly have the right way of thinking and the right people in their hearts. They can certainly be trying to do the right thing, but they're always going to have to be performing. And it's interesting because I think, if I just think about recent British leaders, those leaders that sort of tended to be seen to court celebrity, I mean, remember Blair and the really mm. Britpop parties? The Cool Britannia, yeah. <laughs> and even Cameron a little bit, compared to, say, and this is potentially just my absolute clear view, compared to the more sort of doer Gordon Brown or, um, I don't know, even John Major or Thatcher who are less invested in being linked with celebrity. They can be seen as more serious, potentially. Mm-hmm. But last question for you. Who was your favourite celebrity leader in, that you discovered in your book? Who is, the, who is the one that you think we should know about more and history has sort of ignored, but was your, was your favourite? Oh, well, that's a good question. I suppose... I mean, the thing about leaders is most of them are relatively prominent because they're leaders. Uh, you know, the, those who almost claim power but don't quite are the ones that are quite funny because they tend to slide away, I suppose. I mean, there are some really interesting case studies in the book. And I don't look a huge amount of politics because a lot of celebrity culture is about entertainment and other things as well. But I mean, I talk about Garibaldi, who was, you know, a really fascinating figure and had uh, a really powerful 10 years or so from the 1850s to early 1860 where he was this figurehead for the Italian Risorgimento movement and he was a military general he had um, served time in South America and he kind of became the face of the movement Mazzini realized that he was this much more charismatic figure so if we put him at the front and so he wasn't actually wielding any kind of power but he was somehow the kind of front of the of the bus and what's intriguing about him is he was charismatic and sexy women threw themselves at him he had this very distinctive outfit he would wear berets and lots of red shirts and red scarves and um, quite baggy trousers he looked kind of like a gaucho cowboy sometimes because of his time in south america i suppose and huge crowds flocked to see him when he came to london Britain didn't really have a dog in the fight in it. You know, there was no real reason for British people to get totally excited about an Italian military hero. But when he came here, hundreds of thousands of people lined the streets to meet this guy. And there's a biscuit named after him. And there are pubs named after him. There's one up the road near me actually called the Garibaldi. And I suppose that is fascinating because he was... You know, if you think about it, he was not an internationalist leader. He wasn't a, a globalist. He wasn't someone whose appeal was deliberately designed to appeal outside of Italy because his whole thing was about unifying Italy. And yet, actually, he had a really intriguing allure to those people who didn't actually have any real connection to his story, to his his campaign. So what's intriguing about him, I suppose, is that he 
you might look at him and go, okay, well, he feels a bit like a kind of populist. And yet the people lining the streets to see him weren't Italians, they were Brits. And would Nigel Farage get that kind of, uh, you know, if he was to travel outside of Britain? I don't think so. I mean, maybe, maybe he went to the States and I guess Trump gave him a, you know, a, a bit of a leg up and so on. But when we look at figures who are populist leaders in their own countries, they are often people who are inward looking and so on. And yet Garibaldi managed to kind of be both inward looking and yet at the same time, a global star who was cheered outside of his own country. And that's hard to do. And I'm not entirely sure how he did it. And there's a brilliant biography by Lucy Royale, which is um, is well worth a read, but he's one of those figures that we haven't quite thought about enough perhaps, but he had both the marketing and I guess the story, you know, a military hero and he was successful too. So maybe he's one to re-examine. But uh, yeah, these days we've got a lot of political leaders who are all talk and no trousers. And uh, he had great trousers and great talk. Well, I hope to hear an episode of You're Dead to Me on him soon. <laughs> Love to do that, yeah. Thank you so much for coming to speak to us. Everybody should go out one, not go out, online, order um, your your latest book, Dead Famous, An Unexpected History of Celebrity from Bronze Age to Silver Screen. Thank you so much, Greg. Thank you. Well, we hope you enjoyed those interviews. Just to reiterate at the end here, Undercurrents is now going weekly. You lucky things, bored at home with uh, with not enough to listen to. Well, fear not, Chatham House has got you covered. And so we will be back next week with some new interviews. Incredibly yeah. exciting. And obviously we are going to continue to have to address the pandemic. But if you're incredibly bored of it, we will always have a second interview, which will not be about the crisis so you can balance it out if you would like but yeah we will see you next thursday <laughs> hopefully with some better sound soon as well yes yes with technology that doesn't make us sound like we're sort of shouting at each other from from the wells. toilets at school yeah <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah wells that's a better <laughs> exactly. that's a better metaphor and please get in touch and um, via twitter or through the website if there are any angles that you think we should be covering or anybody that you'd like us to speak to we always want to hear your suggestions absolutely i'm ben r horton on twitter and agnes is at agnes Frim. yep well i hope you'll stay safe and well and we'll See you next week. But in the meantime, I'm Ben Horton. I'm Magnus Frimston, and you've been listening to Undercurrents. Mm-hmm.